Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Evolution and Aging. Dr. Christian Duduve, Belgian physician and biochemist and 1974 Nobel Prize winner in physiology and medicine, and Dr. Harry Moody, executive director of the Brookdale Center of Aging, discuss the evolution of the human body and how it progresses through time. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Duduve, I want to begin with a a statistic that I think captures our attention rather sharply, and that is this, that demographers tell us that today more than half the people who have ever reached the age of 65 in human history are alive at this moment. Really? Isn't that an astonishing figure? You're telling me something. I didn't know that. Yes. And I think that it's an astonishing statistic because it underscores for us that really in many ways the century that's just ending and perhaps the one that's just beginning is aptly called a century of aging, which raises for me a very deep biological question, which is what is aging? Why does it occur at all? I think we are touching uh, the conversation that I just heard with you and Mr. Downs was this question of the origins of life, which is a recurrent issue in the history of science uh, on the very fringes of our understanding. But now when we see so many people, like yourself, who are beyond the age of 65, it raises for us this question of what is it biologically and why does it occur at all? You know, that's an interesting question because I think to me, the question to be asked is, why don't we age faster as a biologist? Because if you are a, an orthodox Darwinian, as I am, you uh, find that there is not much reason for uh, animals to survive beyond reproductive It needs an explanation. Age. It needs an explanation. And of course, many ethologists and sociologists have looked uh, at this problem in Darwinian and also in non-Darwinian uh, terms. Now, uh, I don't have to tell you that the explanation they come up with is that uh, in a society, even in primitive, and perhaps even more in primitive societies than in, in uh, present-day societies, and also even in animal societies, or, or the higher primates, for instance, that uh, the, the uh, old, that is, the animals beyond reproductive age, have a function. What is that function? Well, they say that the function is, for instance, to, uh, to take care of the young while the adults, the strong adults, go hunting and wow. defend the tribe against aggressors and go do the, do the hard work. And so there is a sociological function within the family. And certainly in primitive human societies, the old play a very important function within the, 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 the family. Uh, as we know, and as you know, in some societies, uh, they've even been uh, respected and revered for that. So um, that is one explanation. It's a kind of a functional explanation. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a Darwinian explanation. Darwinian. That is, the, the explanation is that those groups, because they, the, you know, 100,000 years ago, the groups were very much interbreeding. You had small groups of, uh, of uh, maybe uh, 30, 40, 50 individuals, maybe 100, 200. 
and uh, they interbred a lot, so that uh, whatever trait uh, uh, appeared by some kind of, let's say, mutation would very rapidly spread within the whole, uh, with the whole group. So the groups within which traits favoring a longer uh, age, uh, those groups would uh, fare better. They'd be selected and would survive that's right. and flourish. That's right. Now that, that's an interesting explanation. And as you say, it's a, a Darwinian explanation. Am I not correct that uh, even within the, the uh, DNA molecule itself, there's some segments that you might call junk uh, or uh, not functional at all? And I, I wonder, in terms of that analogy, is it possible that old age, rather than being functional in this sense, is just a kind of accident that uh, somehow we survive this length of time, but it, it doesn't serve any purpose at all? Uh, is that possible? Or Well, um, certainly. I mean, everything is possible. In, Darwinians, in general, tend to ask the question, in a different terms, that is, they, they, they look at nature and they ask why? why, in terms of natural selection, was that or that or that particular trait uh, selected. Now, of course, there is no reason we should, uh, we should believe that everything is selected. Yes, that's, I guess, what I'm trying is, to is, is uh, adaptive. Uh, you, you can have uh, uh, traits that just are neutral, yes. uh, don't make any difference, but uh, just uh, were not harmful enough to be right. selected negatively. Yes. So those are, or you have traits that are linked to a useful trait and thus accompanied because the, the, the gene happens to be, to be uh, associated with another gene that is useful. And so that gene goes just, goes together with it. So, all sorts of possibilities. So one has to be very, very cautious about, uh, about uh, finding Darwinian ex explanations for things that maybe do not right. need that kind of explanation. Heuristically, it's useful to start there because it might lead us to look for things. That we that's about. right. I mean, if you just say it's, it's meaningless, well, right. that's that. You, you don't look. But isn't it implicit in what you're saying that let's assume that aging did have a survival value for some societies 100,000 years ago or whatever. Is it possible that that survival value then, which caused the trait to be passed on, let's say a trait for longevity, might have, the trait might survive into a period of time like today when it no longer has the same value? I'm thinking about the fact that we have so many a large population, and some people would say, well, how can we afford to support this aging population? Is a society, let's take France, for example, or some of the European countries, which have a very large aging population, will those societies be favored in this kind of Darwinian sense uh, in the future? It, we're getting into a social question here, but I'm trying to push on this issue of it was favorable 100,000 years ago. Is it still favorable? Or can we even ask that? Well, let, let's put it this way. I think aging is, of course, something that's uh, it's a built-in property. I mean, we're born with the ability to live 100. If no accident occurs, genetically, we're probably programmed. For a fixed limit? Plus minus. But, plus uh, or minus, maybe 120 the, years. The, that, that would be uh, the genetic limit, probably yeah. less than that, probably. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, 
that, that's, that's our genetic uh, heritage. And uh, you're not going to change that, uh, not, not in a Darwinian fashion in a, in a couple of centuries, which is, after all, uh, the phenomenon that people tend to reach their genetically programmed age uh, or, or to approach it is a very recent phenomenon. You just mentioned, you just mentioned that, what did you say, half yeah. the people who ever reach 65 are alive today. So that means that uh, in, in the old days, uh, to, to reach 65 was, uh, was exceptional. I mean, Mozart was 33 when he died, and uh, Schubert was 37, and uh, Brown, I mean, but Brahms was old, uh, Papa uh, Bach was old, uh, Papa Haydn was old, some of them, but most of them. Uh, of those uh, composers uh, died very young. And, uh, uh, and it's very recent that uh, I, I would say that we've changed this with the development of, uh, of sanitation, of nutrition, and the medical technology especially fights against infectious diseases. Right. Now, you made a very interesting point about this maximum lifespan that may be genetically determined. If I'm correct, that maximum lifespan differs with different species, like an oak tree will have one, an insect will have a different one. And uh, it kind of raises the question, why 120 years for the human being as opposed to 200 or 500? Uh, the bristlecone pine, for example, in California lives uh, 4,000, 5,000 years of age. Mm -hmm. And um, I once had a tortoise in my backyard that was about 150 years of age. Why, why can't human beings live to be hundreds of years old, like Methuselah or something like that? Where does this genetic limit come from? Is it, uh, is it fixed? Is it... Uh, well, I, 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 I have no answer to that question, obviously. Uh, uh, it, it, must be, it, it, it must be in our genes, certainly. Our genes. We, we, we're born that way. Now, whether we can change it, uh, by some manipulation, that, that may be quite possible because by the time, and uh, I, I understand that uh, some factors of aging are being recognized, by the time you recognize the factors, maybe you can correct. Manipulate it. You can manipulate them. And, uh, well, take a very, a very simple way. I'm not going to even think about genetic engineering or telomerase or whatever, but a factor in aging is believed to be uh, oxidative damage to the DNA. This is the free radicals that are... The free radicals, all, all right. Time. So uh, now many people, including myself, take vitamin E mm -hmm. every day. Is that proven or is that it's, strongly suspected? Uh, I think there are very good reasons to believe that anti antioxidants, antioxidants. antioxidants is a good way of... Uh, okay. This is a very old uh, heritage. You know, oxygen used to be an extremely toxic substance when oxygen first appeared on Earth. Uh -huh. was, you know, life was born in an oxygen-free world. There was no oxygen four billion years ago. And then the plants started to... There was no oxygen two billion years ago. So for, for half of the history of life, there's there was no oxygen at all. And then you had the, the development of plant, no, not plant life, but those were photosynthetic bacteria called cyanobacterium, mm -hmm. and they started making oxygen using sunlight. And uh, so it took about half a billion years, probably between 2 billion, 1,500 million years ago, the oxygen 
the atmospheric, atmospheric oxygen went up to its present level, or maybe not even it went up later to its present right. level. So that at that time, there was what is often called the oxygen holocaust. Mm -hmm. We don't think of it that way. Yeah. Oxygen is dangerous for your health. I mean, yeah. it's a remarkable idea in but a way. Most living organisms were killed by oxygen, and those that survived were those that developed, that developed ways of, uh, of, uh, of uh, fighting oxygen toxicity, and eventually used oxygen to their advantage. And now, of course, we can't do without it. So we, we need it, but at the same time, we have to control those byproducts, but those molecular still, byproducts. Right. Still toxic. And in fact, our white blood cells will use oxygen to kill bacteria. Because when they, they, they are alerted, they will use oxygen to, to, to shoot free radicals. Part of our immune system. It's part of the immune system, right. you see. So that uh, uh, the, the drawback of, uh, of living with oxygen, with all its advantages, is that oxygen is toxic. And so we've discovered this, and so now scientists are beginning to uh, develop or to develop drugs or ways of... Uh, right, the antioxidant. Antioxidant. Well, I'll take a deep breath and be grateful that I can manage the oxygen that I am right. breathing. But I want to come back to that point about the the limits, because I know that you have worked in cell biology in your career. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, not so many decades ago, Leonard Hayflick had discovered that if we take cells and culture them, they're going to replicate or duplicate up to a maximum, I think around 50 divisions, and then they just kind of stop right there. Yes. Am I characterizing that correctly, that Hayflick limit? Yes, yes. No, that, that was something, of course, that uh, is a very important discovery, because not only did he find that if he took fetal uh, fibroblast cells and cultured them in vitro, by the time they went to the 40, 45, 50 divisions, they would, uh, they would wither and eventually uh, die off. Now, that you might say is a, could be an artifact of in vitro cultivation, so maybe it's not uh, really interesting. But the interesting point is that uh, when he took fibroblasts, from an older animal that had already gone through mm -hmm. 20 cell divisions, then they would survive only 20 or 30 divisions so the in the test tube. Has a memory of how many so that's right. That's right. So they already had the 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 the, the, the symptoms inside of of being uh, of having gone through right. 20 divisions. Now I haven't followed. I, I used to know a little about that. I knew Len Hayfleet quite well in those days. And uh, uh, I haven't followed this uh, closely in, the, in recent years. Uh, I understand that, uh, that this phenomenon, but correct me if I'm wrong, has been connected with the loss of telomeres. The telomeres. These are the structures at the end of the chromosome, at the right. tip right there, that seem to shrink or reduce with multiple cell divisions, aren't they? So that, that would be the physical mechanism of the, of the biological clock, wouldn't it? I, I, it could be. Or at I, least I, an indicator. We don't know if it's the mechanism, but it's an indicator. How, how it might be involved in, uh, let us say, decreasing the protection of, uh, of the DNA, I, I don't know. But let's push this point a little bit, because what we've talked about so far is the maximum lifespan for an organism 
a human being or a bristle cone pine or whatever it is. And now we're talking about a maximum lifespan or a maximum number of cell divisions at the cellular level. What's the connection between the cellular limit and the seemingly genetic limit for a whole organism? Or is there a connection? Well, there may or may not be. You see, um, certainly there is a connection in certain ways. I mean, uh, if you're dealing with the, the systems that depend on cell division, this well, not all of us. Our brain doesn't depend That's on right. cell division. Not, not all of our cells are uh, replenishing themselves, are they? So, uh, let us say the immune system probably ages that way because there is a continual renewal and so the stem cells may may age. It's possible, I don't know, but right. this is a possibility and it's certainly generally considered a symptom of aging that you become more fragile immunologically, you're more sensitive to infections and allergies and we so on. reserve capacity. Right, right, right. So, but what about the brain? Now, your brain cells, my brain cells, all are more than 80 years old because uh, they stopped dividing even in, uh, before I was born. They stopped dividing. Uh, I just read in the newspapers recently that uh, some people have found ways of getting brain cells to divide, so maybe that will change. That, that would be a major breakthrough, wouldn't it? It would. But so the question is, uh, why do brain cells uh, age, or do they age? We don't really know, because uh, uh, softening of the brain may not be a problem of uh, aging neurons. It may be a problem of uh, blood vessels not providing the neurons with nourishment or with enough oxygen so that they just degenerate because they're not fed properly. And, uh, you know, when you get a stroke, that's a vascular problem. So it's, it's the uh, irrigation of the, the irrigation brain problem. that ages maybe more than the brain cells. So we don't really know. But brain cells do age very well, very, very much, in one respect. If you look at the brain of a young animal in in a, uh, in a microscope or in the electron microscope, and the brain of an old animal, you see a big difference. What is the difference? The difference is accumulation of pigment, uh -huh. some sort of a brown pigment which uh, carries the name of, uh, the scientific name is lipofuscin, and the usual name is age pigment because age pigment. It, it increases with, uh, with age. Now, that, that to me turned out to be a very great interest uh, because the pigment accumulates not just anywhere in the cell. It accumulates in a specific part of the cell, which happens to be the part that I discovered. Which part was that? It's called lysosome. Oh, the lysosome. And the lysosome is the cell stomach. So all our cells have little bags full of digestive enzymes and uh, depending on the cell type they have different functions but basically what they do is they break down substances that are internalized into these bags and let's say in white blood cells they would break down bacteria that are phagocytized by the by the white blood cells but 
all cells and brain cells have very beautiful lysosomes, even though they do not eat bacteria. And uh, now lysosomes, they, they are stomachs, the digestive systems of the cells. But they are stomachs of uh, individu individuals that are completely constipated. That is, that have no way. I feel that way at times when my brain gets clogged, so I, you're telling me something that sounds very familiar. But it doesn't sound very good for the brain if it gets clogged in this kind of way. When I say constipated, what I mean is that there is no way for the cells to rid their lysosomes of undigested residues. That's the problem. That's you see, we, we, whatever we don't digest like cellulose, we just get rid of. And if we don't in a, for a few days, then we, we really suffer from that. And cells do accumulate in their lysosomes with time undigested residues of previous digestive uh, events. And so that is one way of aging. Now, we do know that, so this causes a swelling of the lysosomes. And we do know that this swelling is very bad for cells because there are many diseases are known in which the swelling is, happens very early in age, even in newborn children, very early children, because an enzyme is missing due to a genetic deficiency. One digestive enzyme is mix, miss, missing in the bag, and so all the substances that need that enzyme for digestion accumulate. So that may be some kind of lipid, some kind of carbohydrate. And there are a number of different diseases called storage diseases, which are due to the non-digestion in the lysosomes of certain substances that accumulate as a result of that. Where all these children die very early it's age. Serious birth they have, it's a, well, it's a fatal birth defect. They have a brain uh, retardation and so on. Uh, so that we do know that it's bad for cells to have uh, their lysosomes cluttered with, uh, with uh, uh, debris. And so um, I, I really played with the idea and did some work on that to try and find out whether this accumulation of debris, of, 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 of residues in the, in the brain cells, lysosomes, might be an important factor in aging of those cells. I don't know, I don't know the answer. But it sounds similar to the question of Alzheimer's disease as a, as a problem, because after all, one of the great fears that most of us have is that uh, our bodies may outlive our brains. Right. And uh, I think the statistics suggest that uh, the incidence of Alzheimer's is fairly modest by, at age 60, but as you get up to age 85 and beyond, that proportion creeps up very, very high. So the, the risk of Alzheimer's is high there, but that brings us back to this evolutionary possibility, doesn't it? That uh, if we're all at risk of this kind of brain disorder that doesn't manifest till very, very late in life, maybe we could find a way to eliminate that artifact. It isn't really essential to us, uh, this uh, process. Um, and I wonder whether or not uh, that seems clearly one of the great challenges for medical science in the future to uh, find out whether the aging brain can remain intact, whatever happens to the body. Uh, well, um, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. Obviously, you want to protect the brain. We all want to do that. But uh, it's not much use to have a, a young brain and an old heart. Ah. 
We need to keep both. We, we, everything has to be uh, has to be uh, harmoniously uh, connected. Obviously, you can you can you can age uh, and, and survive without legs or without arms or without. But you need a heart. You need lungs. You need the stomach. You need a, a liver. You need kidneys. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so that's important. You, you, the whole body has to remain in, in good shape to keep the brain working. Uh, another point is, uh, I, I don't know whether I read this or had this in a conversation recently, but the, there was this question of, you know, whether you could, you could keep a brain alive by perfusing it with blood. Donovan's brain, there was a science fiction movie about that. That's right. Exactly. That's right. In a, in a jar kind of thing. Now we, 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 we can do this with hearts, with kidneys. Right. Uh, there are machines that will do that. Machine, so, so why not a, a, a heart-lung brain machine? Would right? that be feasible? Well, technically, yes, of course. And uh, it's probably been done with, uh, with animals. I mean, I don't see why it could not be done. The, what I'm wondering, and, and what neurophysiologists would uh, wonder about in this uh, scenario, is how good would that brain be? Because brains really depend on, on their own activity. They are self-winding clocks. Mm. And a brain that doesn't receive stimuli will, will uh, end up uh, not doing very much, you yeah, see. That sounds like a realistic you have isolation. To, you have to provide Stimulus. Input yeah. to get output. The brain is, is a very complex computer, but you need input to get output. And now you might say, well, you could have eyes that would and ears, so that you would still you would still get input for that brain. The problem, the point is that a, a lot of the input comes from our own body. Sensory input. That's right. Mm. We we really we are very much living in connection, our brain is very much living in connection with our body, where we are aware of what we do with our hands, with our feet, we, everything is connected. And so a brain that would be severed from the body, even if it were fed adequately, might not really be a good thinking machine. Ah. So we really need to overcome that dualism of mind and body, or brain and body, and recognize that the two have to work in tandem somehow. Well, yes, I think most neurobiologists uh, would not be dualists uh, today, right, they, right. although they don't have an answer to the problem of how neurons make consciousness, but that, that's a different problem. But uh, th this question about stimuli uh, brings me to a point that I th I've read in a number of books and it has struck me and I think might be very, very important. Now, this doesn't concern aging, it concerns very young children. Namely, that the brain wires itself. What does that mean, the brain wires itself? Fascinating. Well, you know, a brain is made of uh, something like 100 billion cells, neurons, and these cells have pro projections. Yes. They have projections, see. One cell may have 10,000 such projections. 10,000, you say? Yeah. And so these, uh, now, the, to have a, just a, a mixture of such cells doesn't make a brain. What makes a brain is the connections mm -hmm. between, make networks between these cells. Now, you, you, you're not born with these connections. These connections are not programmed. 
by, by your genes. Those are epigenetic. They are made in the course of development because all the, 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 the genes tell the cells is more or less how to organize themselves in centers. The general plan. The general plan. But not the details of the neural network. But, but, but the wiring is something, uh, it couldn't be. It, it couldn't be genetically programmed. You could just make a very simple calculation. If you have 100,000, 100 billion neurons, 10,000 connections, that's uh, uh, a million billion uh, connections. Now, there, there, there are not that many bases in the, in the genome. The genome has only three billion uh, base pairs. So you, you, there are not enough. Uh, the information could not be there. So those uh, junctions, those connections are made epigenetically, that is, during development. Now, what has been found is that these connections depend very much on their being used. The, 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 the brains, you have to imagine brain cells like, uh, you know, a, a huge number of octopuses. And they're all wriggling around and, and, and touching each other with their tentacles. And they do this all the time. It's they touch and, they, and then they, 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 they separate. And then suddenly something happens, a flash of light, a sound, whatever, which causes a current to flow between two tentacles. The synapse? the synapse, that they get stuck. And so the, the connections are stabilized by use. And so if you don't give them an opportunity to be used, there will be no connections. And that's why, you know, these children about children that were raised by wolves. Feral uh, children, wolf children. Right. Well, by the time they get to, to the age of six or seven, it's hopeless. It's too late. You, the, the, they yeah. pass the stage where they can make new connections and they, they, that's it. This raises a very interesting point about aging too because many older people will say, well, I'm too old, I can't learn anything. But it seems like the implication of what you're saying, if I can characterize, characterize it as use it or lose it, that if we don't continue to work on our neural networks throughout our whole life, then we may be in danger of uh, losing it by a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you're so right. And this is the secret of aging. The secret of aging is to keep your brain working. At least that's uh, so, so far as I, I'm concerned. That's yeah, a lesson I'm gonna take from you. I, I've never done it consciously. But I mean, be doing it anyway. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I, 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 I've, I've done this all my life and I tell my friends, I say, just do whatever, play bridge or do crosswords. Or, you don't have to think about philosophy. But do something with your brain, because uh, if you just become passive, that's the end. See? But OK, those are old people. I'm thinking of the young. And I think the, 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 the take-home lesson from the, the, this uh, part of our conversation is, my God, what is really important is to give the young children, as early as possible, maybe at birth or before birth, the opportunities to get a rich input of information so that they can develop the rich potential that they all are born with. And I would say not one in a million children in the world today, maybe even in New York City today, get that opportunity. And so education, especially not just in schools, but before, you have to teach the parents that what right. is important is to, when you, you have a, a newborn baby, speak to it even though it doesn't understand. 
its registers. Sing to it, touch it, cuddle it, show, show it uh, images, music, sounds, everything. Give the child a rich input and you're going to have a lovely child. What I find so interesting about your message is that exactly the same prescription, doctor, that you're offering for the very young, the yes. newborns, is the same prescription that we can give to the elders in a nursing home to involve them with the richest possible environment. Right. So it's a prescription for a whole lifetime. For a whole lifetime, because your metaphor that the brain is the self-wiring system, this almost sets a goal for us for it, it, the it whole of life. It goes on, and uh, the, the little I've read about studies on, on, on aging, uh, uh, sociological studies, uh, tend to prove that this is indeed yes. so. I think that's right. And that uh, old brains can still learn they can still make new connections if you keep them going. That's a very hopeful message. And I've just, not, not so long ago, learned to use a computer, so it, 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 it works. Proved, you've proved your point, not only for me, but for all of our uh, listeners and our wider audience. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for this conversation today. I found it very, very inspiring. And well, it's, thank you. it's opened some vistas, opened up my neural networks <laughs> in ways that I wouldn't have imagined. I certainly, uh, certainly enjoyed it. Uh, it was. Uh, it was a pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.